I used to be full of piss and vinegar. Now I'm just full of vinegar. And he draws on the blackboard. He says, here is an ordinary square. And then Chief Wiggum goes, whoa, whoa, slow down, egghead. (laughs) He can't comprehend the nature of a square. Well, haddly doodly there, friends. I'm Aaron Ross, and welcome back to Who's the Ross? The podcast. Today, my guests are two writers who created some of the most memorable Simpsons episodes of all time. Brent Forrester and showrunner from season seven and eight, Bill Oakley. Okay, let me just start by saying I love the Simpsons. They've had the greatest influence on my comedic sensibilities. And we all know they are a master's class in mixing together absurd, silly, and smart humor. They are also a unifying force of funny. They've bonded me with everyone from fellow comedians to family members to people I've dated. Now, come on, raise your hand if getting Simpsons references was a deal breaker for a relationship. Hmm? That's what I thought. So you certainly get it when I say that interviewing not one, but two elite Simpsons writers has been a top tier achievement in my career. Oh, but these were no easy feats, my friend, because these were men I had to chase down. Not just figuratively, but for one, literally. Now, let's start with the literal chase of a man who has written for The Simpsons, The Office, and Mr. Show, Brent Forrester. The first time I saw Brent, he was delivering a symposium in Hollywood about seizing the day. As a veteran television writer, he spoke about how you create your own pilot, how to separate your ideas from the pack, and how to make the right connections to get your work seen. Obviously, Brent was a connection I wanted to make. So I used his own advice to ask him to be a guest on my show. Here's what I did. I stealthily slid to the front door of the venue, and I watched as everyone shook his hand, asked him their question. And when they were done, he was walking to his car. I asked if I could walk with him. Told him up front that I was going to use his Jedi mind tricks back on him. And after we shared a laugh, he agreed to be on my show. What you're about to hear is our first of many interviews. Recorded at El Sit on Sunset Boulevard in February of 2020. It was a very live chat where I somehow lost my notes on the way to the stage and I actually had to totally wing the interview. Thank goodness I'd seen every episode from his era dozens of times. You can also definitely hear the influence of our live settings from the audience's laughter uh, to the bar staff losing some items in transit and creates some fun improvised moments. Brent also brought his Emmy with him that he had won from the Ben Stiller show, which I believe as the story goes, he won the day the show got canceled. Ah, how Hollywood. And now, without any further ado, enjoy Brent in detailing what a Simpsons writer's room was like in the 90s as we both fanboy about our love for this iconic show. The room was like this. Turn to page three. We need a new, new line for Homer. 
silence for seven minutes as the world's greatest minds tried to figure out a piece of original comedy that would last a hundred years. Right? It was the most crushing, intimidating room in the world. Sometimes they would make jokes and the room would laugh and I wouldn't even get it. I would later look it up. Uh, the first time that happened was somebody goes, Monticello, I thought you said Montebello. And the room erupted in this fucking nerdy historical <laughs> laughter. And I went home but and looked you, up what that you was. You soaked that in. And I, 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 yesterday I watched Homer versus Patty and Selma. Oh, you. And your writing in Homer versus Patty and Selma, first, is one of the best episodes uh, on the since I think it's uh, season six. Uh, your, you, you, I wish I could have annotated, but I was like, I, I can't for them. But for me, I want, there were so many just like, silly stupid smart that silly stupid smart like you just said with the monticello monobello was so good throughout that episode you clearly soaked that up through your time with no that room with that episode was written by the room and okay then let me ask you about the process of the room Mm -hmm. you're in the room you and they say we need 23 episodes this season you take on a couple of them Mm -hmm. right is it is it just riff it out riff it out as far as the plot then you go put down the dialogue how does that work uh roughly speaking yes you start out group uh, the the group comes up with the story. One writer is sent off to write a draft and then brings the draft back and it's punched up. That's the basic pattern. Okay. So you get your time to write a script. That's the precious time for a writer where you get to leave the room. And some writers- Is that in the office too? I mean, like you're in the room, you do the, you do the room, everyone riffs, then you go to your little space, you go to your corner, you knock it out? Yes, yes. Usually. How long does an episode take? Uh, well, it used to take, you'd be given two weeks to do a draft. Now yeah. I find mostly shows will give you one week to do a draft. Wow. Yeah, and then you bring it back to the room. Uh, at The Simpsons, we got uh, three weeks, I believe. It was it was considered quite indulgent. Oh, su- sweet luxury indeed. Uh, favorite episode you didn't write? Now, you wrote three episodes that are in Rolling Stone's top 100. Wow. Uh, Lemons of Troy. Wow. Uh, you were part of the 22 Stories. Yes. And uh, Homer Palooza. Yeah. And Homer wow. Palooza. Nice uh, work. Thank you very much. Yes. That's without the notes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh, favorite episode you didn't write? Uh, well, I would point you to a to a very pivotal episode of The Simpsons that was before my time. I wouldn't necessarily say it's my favorite, but just for your comedy knowledge. Uh, Conan O'Brien wrote an episode of The Simpsons that changed the show. Conan O'Brien was a great writer uh, before he was a talk show host, and he wrote uh, the monorail episode. My favorite episode. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so what happened there was the, the Simpsons was a fairly realistic family show that was animated the the key influence there was jim brooks who was the uh that's right uh, uh, <laughs> people who uh, who still hate jim keep brooks. that in the show that's funny uh jim brooks you know he, he was he was grounded realistic comedy he influenced a very grounded realistic animated family show that's what the simpsons is right until the monorail show conan o'brien realized that you had these tools at your disposal that you could do very surreal stuff and with the monorail show he just changed the whole tone of the show and it became like crack to the other writers who were like we can do episodes like that and the show boom exploded into a new style you get these 30 second chunks that it's like there's five jokes in a row uh, and the callbacks are ridiculous and i mean i call the big one bitey uh, comes to mind within Mm -hmm. that episode Mm -hmm. uh you know the the um uh, the scientist guy shouldn't have stopped for that haircut or anything uh-huh. with Leonard Nimoy, uh-huh. right? It's like, and I say that, uh, may the uh, uh, force be with you. And he goes, do you even know who I am? He goes, I think so. Aren't you one of the little rascals? I mean, like everything. Wow. But, yeah. That's yeah. very interesting to watch a Simpsons episode just play back. I could do, I could probably, I could probably do the whole thing. Oh, yeah. thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Impressive very impressive. Very kind. Unknown Speaking talent. Of. When, when uh, I was a writer at the Simpsons, I found that if you could do the voices of the characters, you could get pitches into the show more easily. Oh. And I could never do any of the voices except for Marge and Grandpa. Go. So, uh,
Uh, I used to be full of piss and vinegar. Now I'm just full of vinegar. Yes. Marge is, uh, oh, homie. I don't understand. Somewhere in that. Vocal. That sounds like the Bart version of Marge, which I, which I always love. And that's the end of that chapter. The week after this interview, Brent and I met up for coffee, and man, we geeked out about all things comedy. Chatted up for hours about our favorite talk shows, television, and comedy films. I mean, this really seemed like a friendship in the making. Also, perhaps a professional friendship, as uh, I had to ask Brent if I one day, when I one day, got a TV deal, would he be the producer of my talk show? He considered it. I was like, come on, man. Be my Lord Michaels, Brent. I trust you. I mean, his sensibilities are so great, his experience, and and man, we just hit it off. So I had to throw it out into the universe. Alas, that friendship was seriously put on hold, at least in person, as the pandemic shut down our live show and took me back to Portland for a year. Luckily... I have the coolest mom in the world who not only let her son who was too old to live with her once again live with her once again she also co-hosted my show online every single Sunday for 52 weeks and Brent became our most frequent guest during that time he would join us via Zoom every month or two and he did special segments as well like uh, a New Year's toast and a graduation segment I mean like Every time we needed him, he was there for us. And my mom and him, they formed a very similarly strong bond. In fact, whenever Brent and I text to this day, he always checks in about mama. This next segment is Brent from his home in Malibu to our home in Portland via Zoom, regaling us how he wrote one of the greatest Simpsons episodes of all time. Homer Palooza. So let me give you a VIP pass because we're going to go backstage and explore the process behind this beloved episode. Cool concert, am I right? Yeah, nice try, Narc. Where's the Narc? Who? That fat Jamaican guy. What did I say? What's going on? Hey, we're just trying to have a good time, Narc. Oh, that's our <laughs> best dressed best friend on Who's the Ross. <laughs> He's back, baby. Aww. Hey, you narc. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. yeah, that's based on a totally real moment, by the way. Uh, when I was no. there. Well, I know. Yeah, so right, let's get right into it. You wrote Homer Palooza. This episode is uh, one of Rolling Stone's top 150 Consequence of Sound just last year, rated the third best Simpsons episode of all time. Wow. So you can, you can hang that. Oh, put that on your shelf behind you. Amazing. I'm so pleased with that. I might have to add that to my mug with all of my top yeah. credits. My dad made me this mug for Christmas, I may have told you. And uh, it's got Lemon of Troy on it, but it uh, looks like we got to get Homer Palooza in there somewhere. Lemon of Troy is, I, I want to say, in the top 25 or 50 on Rolling Stone. Also, I always like to point out my credits glass mom gave me, which is... <laughs> There's, there's, so you you write this Homer Palooza episode, and it's based on exper essentially experience you had. The, the Simpsons say, "Hey, we want to write this uh, this episode where Homer goes to a music festival. Go to Lollapalooza, do research. Let's talk about it." 
That's right. They bought me a ticket to the show and I drove my car down there. Um, I had a 1970 Pontiac GTO at the time for car lovers. That's a pretty cool car, but <laughs> it was an old car and uh, it overheated in the, in the um, drive in. And uh, I had my first experience of what, what Lollapalooza was going to be for me because um, you know, I had to, I had to stop the car for a minute, just a minute to let the car cool down. And immediately this dude started laying on his horn and wanted me to move and could go around me. And I tried to talk to him and he, he the guy, he immediately just wanted to fight me. Like, you know, can yeah. I please beat you up was basically his counter offer to my polite request to give me a second. Let's and, get a little backstory of what, where, where is it? Cause Lollapalooza yeah, was when? it, was it a touring thing or was it in one city at that time? It was touring. It was touring, yeah, and it was it, this time it was in Irvine, which is just south of Los Angeles, some Irvine fairgrounds. They just, just the had, rockinest town that you could put a music festival in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> behind the orange curtain, as they say, in Orange <laughs> County. Right. And, um, and, and, yes, and, and yes, what year was yes. this? Ninety six. Ninety six. Nineteen ninety six. So the, the big the big takeaway that I took from from Lollapalooza was that even though I was only 28 years old, as I recall, I felt like I was a hundred. I mean, everybody seemed yes. to despise me for being old <laughs> at like 28 years old. And right from the start, this kid who wanted to fight me for my car overheating, you know, was like the first sign that things were not going to be mellow and cool. And when I got in there, I was just vibed constantly. Um, at one point, the, the low point for me was um, I was watching a band. Uh, I think it was, Al my recollection was it was Alanis Morissette, but I'm not sure she actually played Lollapalooza. So it might've been an Alanis Morissette type. But I remember trying to soak up the uh, experience of the crowd and being in a crowd in front of the stage. And, and uh, somebody uh, bumped into me and then turned to me and went like this with his fingers and said, leg up, dude. And so I didn't know what this meant. I just did that. And then he put his foot in my hands and then I just lifted him onto the crowd and he just crowd surfed along just the sea of people. And so uh, like 15 minutes later, uh, somebody bumped into me and I was like, leg up, dude. I just said it right back to some guy and he did this. <laughs> and, I his hands, and then I would have put up on the, on the crowd. And for like four seconds, it was just ecstatic. And then they, they just kind of shuffled me all the way along to the front where there's like a, what they call a warning track between the crowd and the stage. And then they just dump me like, they I just dump like, you, whatever, whatever five foot plus arms is, you know, like eight feet onto concrete, just on my back. And Oh, so painful. I lost my wind. I, I was completely thrashed. And, and when I looked up, there was just a bunch of like dead faces of you staring at me. And one guy just looked at me with the absolute absence of compassion. And he said, you fucked up, dude. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just hated here. Uh, so it was just this awful experience. Um, and, and many of the details in that episode are, are straight from my experience. Like, you know, like the snarky kid who's selling, you know, snow cones, but he's got a giant tip jar that says karma. And then when you do karma, karma. You just karma, yeah, karma, you know, it's like, I was like, this doesn't really feel like a karmic exchange. This just feels like a tip jar where you're making me feel worse. Um, so that made it in the episode. But the narc thing was, um, at that time, I used to walk around with a handheld tape recorder all the time. I would be recording, you know, whatever idea came to my head or anything I observed. I was, I was trying to be that kind of writer who was always 
uh, putting down real material. And so I had this tape recorder all through Lollapalooza, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and at one point there was this, this guy, a uh, young guy again, and, and he just kept staring at me really suspiciously. He had like a little, like a roach of a joint. He was kind of took on his joint. And, uh, and he's looking at me, talking to my tape recorder. And he says, uh, he says, what are you doing there, dude? And I said, I'm just recording some stuff. And he goes, am I on there, dude? And I was like, yeah. you are not, because there's nothing you've said that I would want to hear again. And he goes, sure thing, narc. <laughs> That's where it came from. He just figured I was a, a narcotics officer who just was cruising around, you know, with my tape recorder getting info. So that's that's what went into the episode. Well, there's an interesting thing of that. That scene rushes me every time. There's this interesting uh, art imitating life, imitating art thing that happens there, at least for my generation. But you have to realize Lollapalooza was very formative. It sort of plays when I'm 12 to 17. That's the Simpsons episodes are very formative. And when we watch that episode and they're like, you know, who's a narc? Come yeah. on, narc. We're just trying to have a good time. We would then always just call anybody. You know, if anyone told on you in class uh -huh. or was saying, I should ask my parents, we'd be like, come on, narc. <laughs> With the same tone. So you gave us that. And no doubt yes. people were saying yes. it. But I feel like it was more of the lexicon for a new generation because of the Simpsons. <laughs> cool. I'm glad. Yeah, it was that moment also kind of crystallized the theme of the episode because we didn't have really a story or a theme going down there. But this this whole theme of Homer's alienation from youth culture becomes the thrust of the of the episode. That's where it started was my feeling of like, wow, I thought Gen X was uh, was friendly. But it turns out they're just this very dark and kind of snarky, hateful crowd down there, at least <laughs> uh, the, in this episode there's smashing yeah. pumpkin cypress hill sonic youth um peter frampton was, was sort of a, a curveball in, in there but a lot of this sort of gen x or 90s uh band there's this classic line it, maybe you want to tell it the, the billy corgan smashing pumpkins line oh i don't remember that line what is it uh he goes billy corgan smashing pumpkins and homer says homer simpson smiling politely Ah, yes, that's good. That's a good joke. I did not write that joke. I do remember being very proud, though, of the joke where Courtney Love says, hey, cannibal guy, I saw your act, Courtney Love. And he goes, Courtney Love, Homer, grateful. That I thought was uh, a first-class line. Did you write that line? I wrote that line, yeah, yeah. Brent, what you don't know and you just helped me segue into is yes. Courtney Love's not in that episode. <gasps> you wrote that line for her. And oh. they adapted it because yes. they didn't have Courtney Love, but they got Smashing Pumpkins. Therefore, that's, ah. that's the line. But the line was supposed to be, she meets Homer and says, Courtney Love. And he goes, Homer Grateful. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. So I, I have a phantom memory of a joke that never made it in the script. Interesting. And then you can see how the rewrite process works. Oh, we didn't get Courtney Love. We got these guys. and We adapted the line. And that's the end of that chapter. You can obviously tell Brent is a fabulous storyteller. And I have to give him credit for giving me a great note after his first appearance that further assisted his storytelling. He always wanted my questions ahead of time, giving him the ability to formulate his anecdotes and sometimes even bring a proper visual aid to his presentation made our interviews stronger. And look, this made perfect sense. After all, he's a writer. 
So getting advanced questions allowed him to write. There's plenty of spontaneity still in between, but especially when he had a story to tell, this made sure he was always prepped. I'd given questions to plenty of guests before we'd ask for them, but after Brent's request, let me tell you, this became the gold standard on our program, that we would give all questions and segment ideas to them at least 48 hours ahead of time. So I thank you, Brent Forrester, for adding an extra layer of professionalism to the Who's the Ross machine. And now another great story for Mr. Forrester, this time relating to the legendary 22 short stories episode of The Simpsons, which satirized the recently released Pulp Fiction. In letting Brent know that I had wanted to dive into his contribution to this episode, he clued me into the fact that he'd actually gone on a date with one of the stars of Pulp Fiction. And that's the delicious story that we're going to serve up right and now. You wrote the Pulp Fiction parody yeah. portion of yeah. the cafe and the Royale with cheese. You know, I went to the McDonald's in uh, Shelbyville on Friday night. I'm like, what? Uh, McDonald's restaurant. I uh, I never heard of it either. Right. Tell me about writing that portion, yeah. and and then I'm just curious if you've ever interacted with any Pulp Fiction stars that have either noticed your work or you just felt like I wrote something that was about mm. your work. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should ask us about ever meeting a, a Pulp Fiction star. Uh, you know, I, I met Amanda Plummer in a, a bar once, and this was while I was working on The Simpsons. At the time, I used to walk around with a handheld tape recorder, and I was constantly recording like little bits and ideas and observations in this weird, you know, neurotic way. And I was at the Kibitz Room on Fairfax in West Hollywood. It was a, a bar connected with Cantor's Deli. And I was in there, you know, making my little notes. And Amanda Plummer was also at the bar. And, uh, and she saw me and she was a little paranoid, like, are you a journalist recording stuff? And, and, uh, so I just, I introduced myself to her and I didn't tell her I was a, a Simpsons writer. I just, I, <laughs> I introduced myself as just a, a, a fan of her, um, which was weird in itself. Uh, but I, I asked Amanda Plummer out on a date and I was 27 at the time. She was, I don't know, maybe 40. And she said, yes, we went oh, to, good for you. Good, good. We we went, she took me to her apartment and played records oh. for me the whole night uh, as a as, you know, star struck 27 year old and yes. uh, and told me her whole life story. She oh. said that uh, she had been so uh, poor and malnourished growing up that her teeth had fallen out. I remember that. Um, and then she had fallen in love with music oh. and she had this incredible discography and oh. she played uh, a number of songs, oh. which you may know. One of them, Goldfinger. She loved that song from the James Bond movie. Sure, sure. But then what I'd never heard before since called, yes. um, Is That All There Is? It's a kind of a jazz standard. Your mm -hmm. mom's nodding. It is, it's classic. You know, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it, it starts with a, their ho a house burns down and then the singer says, is that all there is? And then uh, the singer gets heartbroken. Is that all there is? And, and then is dying. And is that all there is? Anyway, it was yes. a very Amanda Plummer uh, evening and yes. went no farther than, uh, than the records. In case you're wondering. Uh, <laughs> we are memorable. wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Mom. No, completely, I got the straight arm from Plummer. And that's the end of that chapter. I'm very grateful for all the appearances Brent has had on Who's the Ross. Now, let me tell you, friends, you're only hearing The Simpsons stories. That's right. Wait till we release all the office, Mr. Show, and Ben Stiller anecdotes that he has regaled us with over the years. 
And now, let's talk with Simpsons season seven and eight showrunner, Bill Oakley. Now, while I literally chased Brent down to be on my show, I spent five years figuratively trying to track down Bill. While doing my show in Portland, I had found out that Bill had moved his family to the Rose City. Look, there's only so many people of note in the city I grew up in. So when I found out that one of the best writers for The Simpsons was in my town, I made it my life's mission to get him on my show. But alas, unlike other stories I've told you about having a connection with a possible guest or even running into them, I didn't know how to get in touch with Bill. I had no connection to him. I did, however, through the power of the internet, get his email address. And through that, I started to cold call him, writing him an email each and every year until I got a yes. And let me tell you, friends, I got that yes. So remember, persistence pays off. Now, let's jump into our first chat together. This is live from a place where I had performed every Tuesday night for almost a decade, Dante's in downtown Portland. And this is the summer of 2018. Uh, I'm curious. I just want to go through faves. As you were, you were not only a writer, but showrunner of season seven and eight. I mean, yes. I, that mm-hmm. is, I mean, everyone should be doing this. Showrunner, meaning in control of what happened in those seasons. Season seven and eight, 22 short films. You only moved twice. So you created Poochie, for God's sakes. Um, but I want to know. I just got three faves here. So let's, let's get the three faves uh, for Simpsons writer Bill Oakley. Let's hear it from everybody. Drum roll, Carl. Fave number one. Uh, favorite episode? Uh, probably Homer the Heretic, then I would say. I, I had nothing to do with, it, with that one. Uh, but I would say Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 1 is my favorite one that I had something to do with. Very cool, very cool. And, uh, and Frank Grimes. Yeah, you, uh, that, 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 is, that was a, uh, you could say misunderstood, that was Homer's enemy. Uh, yeah, that was another one that at the time was landed like a lead balloon, and we were just like, oh, well, we're going to be out of here soon anyway. <laughs> it was very memorable. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, it played against it. You hadn't really seen that on The Simpsons. That was, was the intention. I mean, that at the time, I think people, I've said this before, that we didn't think the show was going to be on much longer, and here we are now 25 years later or whatever. I think it's like, almost 30 for the love of God. Yeah, yeah so we, we were like, we want to have all the fun. Nobody was paying attention. Josh and I were running the show, and we were just like, let's do everything we ever wanted to do with these characters in this series and go nuts with it. And nobody stopped us. And we were like, this thing will be dead in another year or two. No TV shit. How many TV shows have gone 10 seasons back then? Right. Very few. Right. And so we were certain it was time to just have all the fun that was left to be had and then leave. And that is what we did. And then it went on for 22 more years. <laughs> well, God bless you. You gave us some of the best episodes and seasons, no, no doubt. Right, ladies and gentlemen? Um, uh, here we go. Fave number two. Favorite Simpsons gag? Your favorite gag? I'll give a few of mine to, to, I, to, I need open, a, I, yeah, that's to open up the brain jar. I love Boo Earns. Boo Earns. Feel free to yell them out. I love Boo Earns. I said Boo Earns. Dent? Thank you for saying dental plan in the dental plan voice. What was that? I have them. I will tell you. There's two. There's two that spring to mind immediately. One is Whitey Whackers. Is, is that one when they throw the pretzels at Whitey Ford and you just cut to the shot of Whitey Ford unconscious <laughs> on the field and the adventurers are like, this is, that's <laughs> just going, the pretzels now knocking Whitey unconscious. The other guy's <laughs> going like, it's a black day for baseball. You know that one? That one, I just, that la- I blew up that frame of Whitey Ford lying unconscious face down on the baseball diamond <laughs> and laughed at it. And then the other one is this one that um, is from the 3D, 
3D Halloween episode uh, when Professor Frink is explaining the nature of the third dimension mm-hmm. and he draws on the blackboard, he says, here is an ordinary square. And then Chief Wickham goes, whoa, whoa, slow down, egghead. He <laughs> 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 comprehend the nature of a square. It's too fast for me. Anyway, sorry. That's, those are my two favorite ones that spring to mind. I love it. 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 I just want to shout out to, I just caught the eye of a friend of mine who loves, uh, where nothing could possibly go wrong. Yes. That's the funny. first thing that's ever gone wrong. Possibly. <laughs> All right. Uh, here we go. Fave number three. Fave character to write for. Superintendent Chalmers. That's why I did that segment. There we go. That's why Steam Hams exist today. Yes. And that's the end of that chapter. Just like Brent, Bill was gracious enough to come on Who's the Raw several times during the pandemic. I actually think Bill preferred the Zoom interviews. I think it made him more comfortable to chat from his own home. And ultimately, I think in that format, it made our talks more intimate. I also think that doing Zoom interviews for a large part of two years, it actually made me a better interviewer. There's just such a difference between doing the Zooms and being in front of a live crowd. And when you're on the Zooms, look, you don't have to balance the audience's attention. You can really do a deeper dive because there's no timeline. You can ask as much as you want and then edit it down later. I also took Brent's note of giving Bill questions ahead of time, which I think really behooved him because, um, duh, Writers want to write. From our first chat, which ultimately was really more of a surface-level fanboy moment from me, I'm not ashamed to admit that, our second interview two years later found me diving deeper into his process as showrunner. And we got to talk about what it's like taking over The Simpsons, helming this show at, I think, the peak of its power in the mid 90s. So let's jump off the comedic diving board together, friends, and let's make another splash with Bill Oakley. You said that more or less you believed that that this was like the end of The Simpsons. There wouldn't be much more after it. So let's just do what we want to do. Let's have fun. How much fun did you have? As much fun as you can have working 14 hours a day <laughs> all, all right, the time the with, the same, with the same guys. It's like the thing about it is that mechanics, the mechanics, it's not fun to work there. I mean, it's more fun. I guess it's probably more fun than working in a lot of places, but it's still not like the wild party that you expect it to be. It's the, the same people in the same room. It's laborious. And then, and it's also equally laborious when it's like, you got to go set out and write a script. And it's like, oh, God damn it. You just got these notes and you got to turn out 50 hilarious pages. And you're like starting there on page one. It was fine. It was, you know, what was really fun yeah. was working with, working with the character sandbox of the characters in Springfield. And that was what we wanted to do. We were like, because the show wasn't going to be on much longer, we were thought because that's so thought, mean, it's still I mean, on now. I know that, that was the wrongest thing, but how would any, when it, TV comedy shows aren't on that long. Think about prior to that time, you know, cheers, mash, all the most successful shows of all time went for about nine or 10 seasons and then stopped. Right. Right. No comedy went for that long. None, 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 none. I didn't know. I was Harriet was ever the like 10 years or whatever. And that was it. So we were on season eight and we're like, what, what comedy, what show, this show is going to be over. It's just, that's the way comedy shows work. Furthermore, people don't remember this, but we, the show wasn't doing that great in the ratings. We were always number 50 or number 60 for the week. We were always getting beat by mad about you. And the thing about it is that people don't remember this because they were kids. When people, 
every kid was watching The Simpsons, right. but not that many people between 18 and 49. I mean, people, a fair number of people, but not a large number of people. And so people look back on it with these rose-colored glasses, like, oh, it was a heyday of glory. Everybody was watching The Simpsons. No, everybody was watching Mad About You and Murphy Brown and things like that. And they were not watching The <laughs> oh, Simpsons. The, those, you know, I'm just going to say, those were corny shows. Uh, that's just, that's my take. I, I don't want you to have to have beef with uh, Candace Bergen or, or Helen Hunt or Paul Reiser, <laughs> but uh, not like the beef you had with a, with a John Oliver there. Um, yeah, I guess I do have those rose colored glasses. They were influential. So you say, okay, so the writing process is laborious, but these seasons that you were showrunner for live. What's on. fun is to say, what's fun is coming up with new ways to, to use it and at the time the things like that you know when so you the come brainstorming up, the, so are the are the riff sessions there's the fun yes. then the job is sitting down to write and then the fun is the final product so it's fun the fun, fun is the, always the funnest thing for me was when we come up with the episode ideas for the episodes riffing you same with same with our program like when, when we're writing a late night talk show it's the it's the couple hours of riffing out the ideas that are fun going and writing the monologue is not as much of a blast yes Yes, yes, totally. So I, I, and I also said, the thing is, like when you get, I'll tell you also the worst thing is rewriting the scripts as, as that was oh, sure. the primary room job was to rewrite the scripts and the scripts, when you, especially when you get a bad first draft and you're like, oh my God, every scene in this is going to have to be rewritten in the room. Every joke is going to have to be changed. And it's at night, you just like look at it, it's, like, it's going to be 10 days of 12 hour days and, and we're all going to want to fucking kill each other by the end of it. Do you remember, so that, remember an episode? I mean, and I, don't, and I don't mean to ask this to get anyone in, in trouble because I'm sure it, it still came out great. Is there an episode in your when you were showrunner where you go, man, we, that was one we really had to work for? That was a that was yeah. A there are six. I'm not going to say which ones they were because, it, as you said, but there were probably six or seven of those. And then there's some great ones where the person the first draft was ex, like that was the oh my god that was so great. When, for instance, David Cohen wrote a first he wrote the first draft of, of the Cheese and Scratchy Poochie show, and we're like. Okay, we can use 85% of the stuff in his first draft, and then we're going to have a play. It's going to be so fun to just go through here and make up funny titles for the itchy and scratchies and stuff. That's those are the good days. You think that the show is going to end soon? What's a risk you took where you were like, "That was I'm so glad we did that." All the weird ones: Frank Grimes, Frank Grimes. Uh, 20, 22 short films, spinoff spectacular, the uh, the third act of the one where um of the day the violence died, where Lester and Eliza saved the thing. And if people didn't even, like, who's that? People had no idea what the ending was. Um, so like that, those are the ones, I mean, they're the weird ones that we certainly would never have been allowed to do had anyone paying attention. At the time, I don't know, nobody seemed to notice or care. And it's only in retrospect, as those episodes have gone, been played over and over and over and people become familiar with them and remember them, that these things, like, as you said, I never heard anything about steamed hams Till four years ago for right. 20 straight years it was completely i never it was radio silence but 22 stories was revered immediately i mean if the, the, the pure connection no. to pulp fiction alone made it like a legendary episode not that we ever heard really that you're you were in a bubble well that was the way before it was before the internet like you didn't have i'll tell you that you know there was no instant feedback what were you supposed to do wait for like you never heard from the public Billy, the public, like, you the know what there were all Except on the message boards on, on all TV Simpsons, sure. where they almost hated everything. They hated everything, <laughs> and eventually you just had to stop reading it, or you would lose your mind. So we didn't pay attention to all TV Simpsons. And as far as the general public, we never received any feedback whatsoever. And it only as as maybe starting around in two thousand five, two thousand seven, did you like read stuff where people were reminiscing about those episodes fondly. You just weren't conversing with the right thirteen year olds. 
<laughs> Maybe that's true. Because <laughs> we were we were constantly talking about, it. and the funny thing is, it just carried into college, and then you start working in comedy, and so you refer. I mean, we've referenced these episodes my entire career. So you know, but you know that now. You know that you king. You you now I do. Well, thank you. But you also king <laughs> in comedy writing. You, thank you got you. a lot of crowns, king. And that's the end of that chapter. Now here's a wild fact about Bill Oakley. As much as he's known for writing some of the most brilliantly absurd comedy on The Simpsons, he's now equally known for his love of fast food. Seriously, he has all web series devoted to bizarre, brand new fast and junk foods. People from all over the world send him goodies, and if you watch his Instagram, he'll reveal some of these odd creations that he has a serious passion for. So, okay, in knowing this, I not only had to connect this with talking about some bizarre foods from Simpsons history, we also created a game that would test his knowledge of fast food mascots, you know, marrying the animated and foodie worlds. This game was called Mascot or Mask Not, which found me presenting a series of real or fake fast food mascots, all so absurd that they all seemed made up. Now he had to tell us which ones were real or not, and let me tell you, when we presented this segment to Bill, uh, I mean, it made him laugh a lot. And he felt challenged by this. And I feel like, wow, like Bill's kind of an immovable force. I mean, he's a certifiable comedy genius. So if he's getting a kick out of this segment, me and our team, man, we did something right. So listen to us doing something right. There it is. <laughs> and check out uh, our talk about Simpsons fast food, and our game about fast food mascots from the spring of 2021. Simpsons were, were so great with their fake products. And I wanted to know, do you have a favorite Simpsons product? Yeah, I do. Chippos. Well, actually, a lot of the food ones, Chippos is my favorite because it's so simple. Like, I love all those ones. Many of those ones from the Hurricane episode, I think, um, like the oh. wadded beef and the things uh, i think there's the what the wadded beef and there's a couple ones but the, my favorite one is chippos which is just really simple it's a hippo with chip with a chip in its hand and <laughs> i think josh and i like actually we just kept it on our wall in the office and i think we compliment one of our way to find the guy who came up with it and compliment him because it's like it's very clever it's very believable and it's kind of has a funny cute mascot on it you know so that's my favorite it's not like the funniest one it's actually the most believable one but that's the one that josh and i always would go come back to as like that was a that's a great invention yeah i love tippos too because it's so real indeed when i was yeah. when i was researching yesterday and i was like well let me refresh my memory of those products i was like chippos seems like it's actually been done at this point it sure does seem believable to me that maybe it was real but i think it's just it's the memory of it is stuck in my head Right, right, right. I, I got to point two things out. Uh, nuts and gum is all time great from The Simpsons. Yeah. I don't know if that was under your watch, but I feel that like was our Josh and I. Josh and I wrote that, actually wrote that exact joke. You're Mr. Nuts and Gum. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, me and Josh share the title. Right. You're nuts and he's gum. I get it. You know, right, 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 right. Like Lenny I, McCartney. We know all about that, don't we? Yeah, we should do those bums. That, uh, what's that? Oh, sorry. Um, eh, Malk also huge fan of Malk. The knockoff milk that the school serves of Malk is now they make that, by the way. I don't know if you've seen it. There is Malk 
and it is almond milk. And that's why they call it. That's why it has an A and it is available. And you see it in new, you see it in um, whole foods and stuff. And every month somebody sends me a photo of it. And I am like, that's pretty impressive. But the fact of the matter is the people who made it said they had never seen the Simpsons, which is probably why they call that mouth because they were totally oblivious to the fact that it was a well-known joke. You wouldn't want to actually have your product be milk. The idea is it wasn't quite milk and wasn't good. Uh, and and yet, what a world it's been in stores. In. They haven't gone bankrupt yet. It's been in stores for at least three or four years now. So <laughs> if you go to a, 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 a high end grocer like Whole Foods or New Seasons, you're going to find milk. Of course, it's expensive. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a knockoff. It's probably like a fraction of a penny that schools serve to save money. And in our world, it's like eight dollars for, you know, a pint. Of yeah, the still almonds aren't cheap, you know, wheat milk. Right. It's hard to tell the real from the fake, Bill Oakley. And that's a great segue into our mascot or masks not. We all know, you know, the Ronald McDonald and the Hamburglar, but I've mentioned the birdie, which I don't, I'm not even sure at McDonald's what birdie's realm is. And there's the Fry Guys and Grimace, um, who I called the Schmookler until I was like 19 and realized <laughs> that, that wasn't his name, although it fits. So uh, because there are so many of these mascots, what we're going to do right now is I'm going to give you a list one by one of uh, prospective fast food mascots. And you got to tell me if it's real or fake. It's called right. mascot or mask not. Ready, Bill? Ready. Number one, mascot or mask not. Gilbert Giddy Up. Not. Gilbert Giddy Up is a mascot from Hardee's. I can't believe this. <laughs> from Hardee's. Do you eat Hardee's? You ever eat Hardee's? That's a mi more Midwestern, right? Sort of. Uh... It's the Eastern version of Carl's Jr. Oh, now, but Eastern... I don't think it was in the 70s. In the 70s, I think before they merged, it was its own chain. Um, it, right. It, so, so Gilbert Giddyup was a sheriff that stopped crime at Hardee's by feeding people burgers. Super Mouth will eat all the burgers in Hardee's. I'll stop him. I'll give you a juicy burger. Hardee's now. Wow. But, yeah. That's amazing. Little little history lesson there there for you. Gilbert Giddyup uh, real. Okay. Oh, for one, let's move on to number two. We'll, we'll catch fire here. Uh, mascot or mask not. The Cheese Meister. Not. <laughs> I, I, dang it. It's tough to do these games with comedy writers because when they don't like one, you can hear it in their voice like, dumb. Uh, but that right. could easily that, be the same as Gilbert Giddyup. I mean, this, they're all the same level of... of, of Creativity, I feel. <laughs> and I agree. And that's what we're trying to do. But you really sniffed out the cheese meister. Indeed, not real. Okay, one for two. Mascot or mask not. Chubby chicken. <sighs> These are good. I have to tell you, they're hard. it's hard to tell. Um, I'm all going to say not. I'm sorry. Chubby chicken is real. <laughs> We've gone not with all of them. Uh, but two out of three have been real. And those have been the ones you, you've missed. Uh, chubby chicken from A&W. I would have known. A&W, and he looks like Tweety Bird with diabetes. I'll have to Google him right after this. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've got the pictures. I'll send you. I'll send them over to you. Okay. And I, I had to do some research on these as well, like looking up Gilbert Giddyup on uh, YouTube proved fruitful. Here we go. Number four, mascot or mask not, Sensei French Fry. Sensei gonna. I'm going to say not. You were right there. Indeed, I think sensei. that America, America was not know what sensei was in the 1970s. That's a, that's a recent uh, introduction to the American vocabulary. 
Good point. Could have been regional. Could have been a Japanese. Didn't say it was the, you know, didn't say it was uh, all American. <laughs> That's okay. good. I like that. Not, not going to do that. Got to keep <laughs> it international. Um, uh, yeah, well well done there. Okay, so you've said, I just want to clarify, people, halfway through Mask Out or Mask Not, you've said Mask Not for all of them, but there are real ones in here. So let's see if we ever, okay. at any point, you think that any of these might be real. Number five, mascot or mask not, Sir Choose a Lot. Sir Choose a Lot. <laughs> For no reason, I'm going to say that's real. Oh, I, I probably pushed you too far into that. It is not real. I'm sorry, Bill. I've got a zero on this, don't I? Oh, wait, I have one. <laughs> two, no, you got two. You picked... Um, you you picked you knew Cheesemeister and Sensei French Fry were not real, so you're two for five. Okay. We want we want the goal with these is always to get above the equator line, and so we have to sweep in order to do so. Okay. May the the fast food force be with you, uh, Bill. Mascot or mask not? Hamburger hungry. Hamburger hungry. Mascot or mask not? I'm going to say that's real because it's too dumb for you to have written. Yeah, it really is too dumb. I almost <laughs> wanted to change it. It is real. It's from Red Barn. You know Red Barn? I do. I was just talking about it yesterday as an example of a fi- failed chain that nobody remembers. Yeah, they were so, failed. I think they turned into just the barn later, and I'm not sure if those even exist anymore. I feel like they also might have been parodied in uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, where they had some sort of some similar barn-esque. Oh, wow. Aspect food thing that rolled into town of all great films we love because we've got nothing better to do <laughs> uh yeah uh hamburger hungry i think was uh, matched with other hungries so there was chicken hungry and fish hungry they were really lame mascots but hamburger hungry himself was kind of like a mayor mccheese but without a civic career so instead of a sash and okay. a tie, he had like a sideways hat and was like yo what up hamburgers are you hungry wow yeah <laughs> Real dumb. All right, uh, here we go. Uh, we're doing well here. Three out of six. Let's see if we, again, uh, stay above the equator line. Mascot or mask not? Patty Burger Patty. Not. That is correct. Patty Burger Ooh. Patty is not. I like Patty Burger Patty. It is dumb. But at the same time, I believe it could have been one. But you sniffed that one out. Uh, four out of seven. And finally, for Bill Oakley, the king of uh, comfort food. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The Kerger Bing. Kerger Bing. Oh, that's another perfect example. It could be, it could, it's so dumb that it might be, I don't know that you would write that. It's maybe, it's it's too dumb for you to write. Uh, It's got to be some weird Burger King thing that they did that was like an anti-Burger King, where he was like the bizarro Burger King for maybe a year. I'm going to say that's real. You're right, Bill. You did it. Yes, you are right. He was the original Burger King mascot, and I'm not particularly sure why, other than they felt it connected with kids. So they had this very simple, not elaborate cartoon, and his name at Burger King was the Kerger Bing. That's astonishing. I really, I've learned a lot during this game. I have to tell you, that I, I did too. My, I, when, when our writer Seth Lazier presented me with Kerger Bing, I was like. No, there's no way that's real. And if you go on the Wikipedia for Burger King, it's like right at the beginning that there was a Kerger Bing. 
It is bizarre. Uh, great close there, Bill. Uh, five out of eight. Uh, thank you so much for, for being with us. And that's the end of that chapter. Wow. Thank you guys so much for going down, not just memory lane, but Evergreen Terrace <laughs> with me uh, there and learning so much about uh, the ins and outs and the process and some really fun facts about the Simpsons. Let me tell you, there are going to be future episodes with these legendary writers who have done so much more outside of the, the Simpsons world. And I can't wait to share that with you. You know, now speaking of future episodes and the 90s, what would you say if I had an interview with the director of Billy Madison and Half-Baked? Would that be something I could interest you in? because that's what I have in store for you on our next episode when I sit down with one of the greatest comedy directors from the 90s. Nay, I say the greatest comedy director from the 90s, Tamra Davis. In the meantime, make sure you follow Who's the Ross on whatever platform you're listening to your podcast on. And, you know, check out our YouTube channel where we've got tons of extra clips and additional interviews for you to enjoy. Well, thank you again for listening friends stay rossome and we'll see you next time on who's the ross the podcast <laughs> <laughs>